Dear Father, please be with us just now. Please enlighten our minds. Bring us into your presence, if possible, that uh, things of real importance would become clear, that relationship and trust in you will be stronger because of our thoughts just now. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, the book of Isaiah is quoted 21 times in the New Testament. And so Jesus referred to it several times. Paul, of course, uh, this is a very, very meaty book. And I actually seriously had the thought, you know what, let's just spend the whole rest of the year through May on the book of Isaiah. But uh, I think I decided that we'll break it down into two Bible studies. I'll talk next time about why the division here coming up into uh, Isaiah 40, which we're going to do next time. But there's a lot to talk about here in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. First of all, I've shown this slide about every time now, but just so we remember where we are. Splitting of the kingdoms and uh, 931 and then 722. Remember we've said that the uh, 10 northern tribes are lost forever. And so we have Isaiah giving a message during this time. And his commission from God actually came the year that Isaiah, king of Judah, died. So we're going to start here with this really interesting passage in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. Isaiah was one of many people that actually saw God. Ezekiel, you remember, saw God. And several other people in the Old Testament. Moses saw God face to face. He was sitting on his throne, high and exalted, and his robe filled the whole temple. Around him, flaming creatures were standing, each of which had six wings. Each creature covered its face with two wings and its body with two and used the other two for flying. They were calling out to each other, Holy, 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 the Lord Almighty is holy. His glory fills the world. And does this remind you of any other book in the Bible? Of course, the book of Revelation opens up with this great scene, holy, 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 very similar here. Now, A couple of things are interesting here. First of all, the title, uh, the Lord Almighty, who is this referring to? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And uh, the other point here, his glory fills the whole world. Um, I've tried to bring this up several times in the Bible study that this glory ultimately is not just about a physical brightness or power. Yes, that's part of it too. But that ultimately the glory of God is his character. Now, whose glory fills the entire world? Ultimately, Jesus came to reveal the Father and that glory uh, will ultimately lighten the whole world. But just on this title here, the Lord Almighty, so we open to Revelation. And Revelation is the revelation of a person, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how the book opens up. And we have this description here, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the first to be raised from death, and who is also the ruler of the kings of the world. He loves us, and by his sacrificial death, he has freed us from our sins and made us a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. To Jesus Christ be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming on the clouds. Everyone will see him, including those who pierced him. All peoples on earth will mourn over him. So shall it be. And notice, I am the first and the last, says the Lord God Almighty, who is, who was, and who is to come. So is this person of great spectacular glory seen by Isaiah, father or son? I think you could make a case that it's the son, but would it matter? Jesus came and said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And he said, the father and I are one. So really, no, it would not matter. But Jesus, remember, is the God of the Old Testament, the Son. And he's the one who condescended uh, to become a human. But ultimately, Father, Son, 
doesn't matter who our, our image here is, as long as we're not imagining them to be different in character in any way. So coming back here to what Isaiah saw. The sound of their voices made the foundation of the temple shake, and the temple itself became filled with smoke. I said, there is no hope for me. I am doomed, because every word that passes my lips is sinful, and I live among a people whose every word is sinful. And yet, with my own eyes, I have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the creatures flew down to me, carrying a burning coal that he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. We're going to end the Bible study on this subject, but just notice Isaiah here in the presence of God is not saying, God, you're so bright, I've just got to get out of here. What Isaiah is in recognition of is, first of all, the beauty of God, his character, and by contrast, he is acutely aware of his own guilt, sin, condemnation. This is what is crushing Isaiah. This is a very important point, which will tie in, I think, in a, in a great deal to our understanding of um, what happens in the end and, and what Isaiah will describe later on. But notice this coal, uh, he touched my lips with the burning coal. Do you think it burned his mouth? No, this, there's some meaning here. And said, this has touched your lips and now your guilt is gone and your sins are forgiven. And then I heard the Lord say, whom shall I send? Who will be our messenger? And I answered, I will go send me. So whatever happened here with this burning coal touching Isaiah's lips, he's now encouraged and he's ready uh, to give this message. We're going to come back and discuss this subject of fire and being in the presence of God um, here at the end. But this is a, a good place to begin. Tying with this, we didn't read, have time to read this here in Exodus, but I think this uh, is significant. What's Isaiah experiencing here? In Exodus 33, But you may not look directly at my face, this is God talking, for no one may see me and live. And yet we have many descriptions in the Bible of people seeing God face to face. Um, and I think here the importance is this is not a hostility that exudes from God. If you see me, if I catch you peeking, I'm going to destroy you. I think this is describing a natural process that occurs. There is a great clarity apparently in the presence of God, both of God, what he is like in character, and also about ourselves. So we'll come back to this uh, subject here at the end. Remember we talked about the prophets last time, that these guys did not have an easy life. We talked about Hosea. God came the first time and said, go marry a prostitute. Uh, we talked about Micah, who, remember, walked around naked and wailed like an ostrich. And now Isaiah. Be, be careful if you wish to be a prophet. It would seem like uh, these guys uh, had a tough time of it. This is what Isaiah went through during a three-year period of time. So three years earlier, the Lord had told Isaiah to take off his sandals and the sackcloth he was wearing. He obeyed and went around naked and barefoot. When Ashdod was captured, the Lord said, My servant Isaiah has been going around naked and barefoot for three years. Imagine that. And this is a sign of what will happen to Egypt and Ethiopia. So if you're Isaiah, it was so important to give this message and that it was really well known. He had to walk around naked and barefoot for three years. And again, more difficulty here for the prophet Isaiah. This is how the people viewed Isaiah. They complain about me. They say, who does that man think he's teaching? Who needs his message? It's only good for babies that have just stopped nursing. He's trying to teach us letter by letter, line by line, lesson by lesson. 
And I think sometimes in the translation, we lose a little bit the punch of how this was interpreted in that day. Um, just like when Jesus, remember he's out with uh, Satan uh, with the temptations in the wilderness. And in the King James, Jesus ends it by saying, get thee hence. It really loses the punch, which I understand that is just the harshest, most severe way you can possibly, in the Greek, tell someone to get lost. And so the Message Bible has Jesus saying, beat it, Satan. Okay. And uh, this verse, I really like what the Message Bible does with, with this. Is that so? And who do you think you are to teach us, Isaiah? Who are you to lord it over us? We're not babies in diapers to be talked down to by such as you. Da, 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 blah, blah, blah. That's a good little girl. That's a good little boy. But that's exactly how you will be addressed. God will speak to his people in baby talk one syllable at a time. That's, uh, I think, kind of gives you some idea of how Isaiah was viewed with not much popularity. What happened to Isaiah? Well, this is legend. But if we skip forward to the book of Hebrews, where Paul is summarizing the lives of these people in the Old Testament, he would summarize them this way. Some were mocked and whipped, and others were put in chains and taken off to prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went around clothed in skins of sheep or goats. And the description goes on. And Jewish legend is that Isaiah was sawed in half in a hollow log by King Manasseh. King Manasseh, remember, this is the one who killed so many people that the streets flowed with blood. And this is in the Apocrypha. Uh, but not everything in the Apocrypha is false. And so it, it would seem like this is actually quite credible, that this is how Isaiah ended his life. Manasseh, you remember, came around. He repented. God won Manasseh back. It is fascinating to imagine here Manasseh and Isaiah arriving in heaven and Isaiah will see Manasseh and his last memory will be, well, that's the guy that cut me in half. And we just have to imagine what kind of a conversation are Manasseh and Isaiah going to have. Just like uh, David and uh, Uriah, those two men meet in heaven. Don't you think they'll both be in heaven? And what kind of a conversation? Will they come to blows in heaven? Uh, well, no, or they wouldn't be there. But um, I think it would be interesting to think about some of these uh, combinations. So before we get to some more of the meat of the message, uh, a little bit about the people. And this is pretty redundant from what we've talked about in Hosea, Amos, and Micah. The book of Isaiah opens this way. Listen, heaven, and pay attention, earth. The Lord has spoken. I raised my children and helped them grow, but they have rebelled against me. Oxen know their owners and donkeys know where their masters feed them, but Israel doesn't know its owner. My people don't understand who feeds them. Doesn't this harmonize so well with the consistent underlying message. It's all the way through. My people don't know me. Eternal life is to know God. That's what it's all about. The book of Isaiah opens that people don't know its owner. Remember that knowledge is intimate, personal, relationship-based and based on a true knowledge of character. That, again, is the bottom line. Now we get this great description here of what the people are doing. Again, the Message Bible, but this is a very... Uh, uh, read it in any version. It's incredibly intense. Why this frenzy of sacrifices? Have you noticed all the way through that people are sacrificing and God is not pleased? Don't you think I've had my fill of burnt sacrifices, rams and plump grain-fed grain -fed calves? Don't you think I've had my fill of blood from bulls, lambs and goats? When you come before me, whoever gave you the idea of acting like this, running here and there, doing this and that, all this sheer commotion in the place provided for worship, quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games, monthly conferences, weekly Sabbaths, special meetings, 
Meetings, meeting, means. I can't stand one more. Meetings for this, meetings for that. I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion, religion, religion. While you go right on sinning. Just like uh, Micah, who would say, what shall I bring? Shall I bring my firstborn, endless streams of olive oil? No, do what is right. When you put on your next prayer performance, I'll, n- I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or loud or often you pray, I'll not be listening. And do you know why? Because you've been tearing people to pieces and your hands are bloody. Okay, God is ultimately not interested in big religious show. He's interested in relationship and he's interested in us doing what is right. Skipping forward to Isaiah 29, a little more about the people. The Lord said, these people claim to worship me, but their words are meaningless and their hearts are somewhere else. Their religion is nothing but human rules and traditions which they have simply memorized. And Jesus quoted this very verse in discussing with the Pharisees. You know what? You guys have just memorized a list. You don't know God. And they had quite a list, didn't they? Um, But you do not know God. And so I'm always uncomfortable if uh, religion is ever sounding like it's primarily about um, are we eating the right food? Or is our behavior during a 24-hour period of time every week, what it should be? Are we doing the right things um, during that day? If we are keeping a list that God is so strong that that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a relationship. Um, I gave a talk about a year and a half ago at a camp meeting, and the subject happened to be the the death of Christ. And, uh, you know, that's no more intense subject than that. And uh, when I was done, I saw this man coming from the back of the room and looked like he was... Uh, filled with emotion. And so I'm just watching him come up and uh, he began to tell me the great difficulty he had getting to the meeting, how their electricity went out at home and his car broke down twice getting there with his wife. And, you know, maybe in a somewhat vain way, I'm thinking, well, he must have been quite moved by what I had to say. And I'm kind of preparing for uh, whatever comment he would have about my talk. And we finally got out. What was uh, so emotional to him was that a woman came up to his wife after the meeting and commented that her dress was just the perfect length for modesty. And they were so delighted that they had been a witness to this other woman because her dress was at the perfect length. Now, I'm not meaning to be uh, critical or condemning because people like this, they really want to do what is right. They're really trying. Their heart is in the right place. But is that what God is looking for? It's actually much easier to keep a list in some sense, because if our number one thing is, well, eating pork is bad and I haven't eaten pork today and you go to bed, you feel pretty good about yourself. I didn't have any pork today. But if ultimately eternal life is about knowing a person and a relationship, and that is a 24-7 commitment, uh, that's a bigger deal. But that would seem to be uh, what God's looking for. So we come to a very interesting story here uh, about King Ahaz, ruler of Judah. And war broke out at this time. Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, king of Israel, attacked Jerusalem, but were unable to capture it. Notice we've even got here Israel attacking Judah with the help of Syria. And when word reached the king of Judah that the armies of Syria were already in the territory of Israel, he and all his people were so terrified that they trembled like trees shaking in the wind. And just for um, here coming back here, Isaiah, remember he's prophet during the time of Ahaz. And so Ahaz and Judah is being attacked by Uh, Israel, which was led by Pekah, and by Syria. And they're completely overmatched. And so Ahaz here 
is uh, very distressed, and Isaiah comes, even though Ahaz was a great rebel, he comes to Ahaz and gives him this message. The Lord sent another message to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God to give you a sign. It can be from deep in the world of the dead or from high up in heaven. Ahaz answered, I will not ask for a sign. I refuse to put the Lord to the test. To that, Isaiah replied, Listen now, descendants of King David. It's bad enough for you to wear out the patience of people. Do you have to wear out God's patience too? Well then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And here's the sign. We know this well, don't we? A young woman who is pregnant will have a son and will name him Emmanuel. By the time he's old enough to make his own decisions, people will be drinking milk and eating honey. Even before that time comes, the lands of those two kings who terrify you will be deserted. Now, who is this baby? Yeah, it it is Jesus, but would that make sense to King Ahaz? Would it fulfill the prophecy that by the time he's old enough to make his own decisions, the two kings that terrify you will be gone? Would it make sense to come to Ahaz and say, you know what, in about 720 years, those two kings are going to be gone? Um, well, I think there's a beautiful resolution to this. And this is very controversial. The, the Revised Standard Bible came out in 1952. This Bible was burned because it translated this word young woman instead of virgin. And there are two Hebrew words here, uh, Alma, which can mean either a virgin or young woman. And that is the word in the Hebrew. And Betula, which is very specific, can only mean a virgin. And so here we have a word which actually can fit for either one. Now, if you, if Isaiah were really meaning here just to say this can only be a virgin, we would expect this to be uh, the word that's chosen. And that's why when you look at a lot of the different translations of the Bible, you'll find virgin and young woman. And there's no malicious um, attempts here to uh, distort the message, but these are how translators uh, struggle with these issues. Well, notice it really happened. This came true. The Lord said, Isaiah... Get something to write on. Then write in big, clear letters the name Maher Shalar Hashbaz. I will have Uriah the priest and Zechariah serve as witnesses to this. And sometime later, my wife and I had a son. And the Lord said, name him Maher Shalar Hashbaz, because before he can say mommy or daddy, the king of Assyria will attack and take everything of value from Damascus and Samaria. And by the time that boy was old enough, the two nations, Israel and Syria, were gone. They were no longer a threat to Judah. So it really came true for King Ahaz. That sign was really fulfilled. Okay, the question is, does this not also refer to Jesus? I think it does. I think uh, it applies to both because we just keep reading on here in Isaiah, uh, familiar words. The land of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali were once disgraced. And this is the area where Jesus preached. But the future will bring honor to this region. From the Mediterranean eastward to the land on the other side of Jordan and even to Galilee itself where the foreigners live, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. They lived in a land of shadows, but now light is shining on them. For you have broken the yoke that burdened them and the rod that beat their shoulders. And notice, a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and he will be our ruler. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, His royal power will continue to grow. His kingdom will always be at peace. He will rule as King David's successor, basing his power on right and justice from now until the end of time. Did that happen to Isaiah's son? No. This is referring to someone much greater 
Obviously, this is referring to Jesus. And so I think here we have a very important prophetic principle that we see many, many, many times. And that is, when a prophecy is given, there is very frequently an immediate fulfillment of that that fits perfectly for the time. And then there is a secondary, much greater uh, fulfillment of that prophecy. And of course, Jesus here. I like the titles here. Wonderful Counselor. Who's the Counselor? Holy Spirit. Mighty God, Eternal Father. The Father. Prince of Peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And I think the meaning here is the Son, Jesus, came as the perfect representation of the Trinity. God, Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the perfect representation of all three of those in character. And so he came to represent the Godhead and his royal power uh, will last for all eternity. So it really fits. It's actually better, as I understand it, to have that word not just mean specifically virgin, but a word that can be taken either way. It fits better for the prophecy and uh, we shouldn't be burning Bibles over things like this. Now, here's an example right here in Isaiah of this um, principle about an immediate prophecy being fulfilled and then it being fulfilled later on because we skip ahead to Isaiah 13 and we have this whole passage about Babylon and about the king of Babylon. And it seems to fit here for the king of Babylon. Now, this is interesting because Babylon was nothing at this time. All right, and Isaiah... Here, God, prophetically looking forward, knew that Babylon would become a major nation. So we have this whole passage dedicated to Babylon, which at the time would seem like, why are we talking about this rather insignificant uh, nation? But notice how the description goes on about Babylon. King of Babylon, bright morning star, you have fallen from heaven. In the past, you conquered nations, but now you have been thrown to the ground. And many of you know this passage Uh, Many versions, again, we get into translational issues here, but New King James says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. And again, is this uh, malicious? We distrust our Bibles because some say bright morning star and others say Lucifer. Not at all. We look at uh, the meaning of this here. We have a Hebrew word which I'll not try to pronounce, but it means shining one or brilliant one. And it really means the planet Venus, the brightest of all stars, well, brighter than any star. It's a planet. And in the Greek Septuagint, uh, this word is translated as heophosphorus. You can hear the word phosphorus in there, which means morning star, bringer of the dawn. And again, in Greek, this refers to Venus, very bright in the sky. And we don't get the name Lucifer until the Latin Vulgate And the name Lucifer means light bearer. It's not a bad name, okay? When Lucifer sinned, his name was no longer Lucifer. It was Satan. And uh, not to throw you all off here, but a title for Jesus is also uh, the light bearer. So it's not a bad name. In 2 Peter 1.19, Christ is referred to with this same word, day star, light bearer. And in Revelation 22.16, very last chapter of the Bible, We have Jesus saying, I am the bright and morning star. Same thing. And I understand if you speak uh, Romanian or uh, Portuguese that it literally says, I am the bright Lucifer. Okay? So if you just walked in, uh, forget what I said there, but um, because I'm not making a point at all that would be bad otherwise. (laughs) But anyway, it's just a a light bearer, uh, bright morning star. It's not a bad name. Okay? When Lucifer sinned, he ceased to become the light bearer. But let's just read the passage here. It gives us some interesting insights uh, going back to this war in heaven. 
How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart. And notice all of the eyes here. Uh, Satan is very much a me, myself, and I uh, here person. I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit in the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. That's always where the gods assemble. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And we see here the, the principle of Satan's kingdom, which is survival of the fittest. Climb to the top, kill anyone possible to get to the top. And we just contrast this with the principle of God's kingdom, which is you die even for your enemy. Jesus came, God came, condescended. I mean, Satan's trying to go one way. God, to win the war, went exactly the opposite way. Spent nine months in a tomb and dead in a tomb. And so, uh, but God, in his great condescension, ended up defeating Satan as he is trying to climb to the top. Really quite amazing, the, the two differences there. But the subject I want to finish up here on the last 25 minutes, remember our first Bible study, we introduced the subject of hellfire. And I think what is so important about this, we, we tend to think about this predominantly from the book of Revelation, is that the book of Revelation is not a standalone book that we don't need the rest of the Bible to interpret. The book of Revelation is entirely Old Testament. All of the poetry, the imagery, it's from the Old Testament. And so if we haven't read and understood our Old Testament, we're not going to really understand that much what is being described in the book of Revelation. And some of the imagery that's used here in talking about fire uh, occurs in the book of Isaiah. Um, it's always dangerous to introduce a big topic like that and not express it fully. So this is just a little bit of a, an appetizer to this subject, but it is... Uh, um, an important one for me, I will say it's probably different than what most of you have heard, um, so find it out for yourself. Don't necessarily believe everything that I say, but this is, these are some of the conclusions that I'm coming to about this. Uh, I want to read this passage in Revelation 14, which is kind of a key text for a subject of an eternal place of torment for many. And then let's go back and try to understand this from Isaiah. This is a third angel's message. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. And so... To many, this is very clear. I mean, how could you interpret this anyway that the wicked will suffer in very real sulfurous flames for all of eternity? But where, did, where is this imagery from? Part of it is in the book of Isaiah. And it's in this description uh, in Isaiah 33, 34, describing these very end-time events and the, the light here from the book of Isaiah, I think, is very important in, in our understanding of this. The rivers of Edom will turn into tar, and the soil will turn into sulfur. The whole country will burn like tar. It will burn day and night, and a smoke will rise from it from ever. The land will lie waste age after age, and no one will ever travel through it again. Owls and ravens will take over the land. The Lord will make it a barren waste again, as it was before the creation. So the land of Edom would burn day and night, smoke will rise from it forever. And some versions are even stronger here on the forever and ever part, 
And our question is, is the land of Edom still burning? Well, we read on about this great fire that's going to go up forever. Well, now it, it lays waste. No one will ever travel through it again. Owls and ravens will take over the land. Is it still burning? No, it's a wasteland. Okay, so um, our understanding here, I think, of the book of Revelation is, well, we just look back. How was it used in the Old Testament? It was a place that was destroyed completely, thoroughly. We actually don't even have any record that the land of Edom was destroyed by any sort of fire. And it's uh, not inhabitable. It's forever destroyed. So on this subject of fire, and coming back here to Revelation, here is, I think, a very, very important clue um, that this torment and burning sulfur, notice where it occurs, in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. Now, a question here is, um, well, first of all, obviously we have some symbolism here. Uh, Jesus is, is not a real Lamb, but uh, we know that this is referring to Jesus. But is the question here is, are God and the angels also standing in the fire? Well, I think it's very significant here that the wicked here, that the suffering occurs in the presence of God. And I understand that what is being described in Revelation is that ultimately we all come face to face with God and that for some uh, this is, uh, is a pleasant experience and for others there is great torture in that. And I want to try to uh, make a better case for this. Of course we know that God himself is described as a fire. In Daniel 4.24, the Lord your God is like a flaming fire. And Paul would say in Hebrews 12, for our God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? In Isaiah 10, God, the light of Israel, will become a fire. Israel's holy God will become a flame, which in a single day will burn up everything, even the thorns and thistles. What does that mean, God himself is a fire? Let's review a little bit. We haven't had a time to talk about a lot of these, but coming up to this point in Isaiah, just the subject of fire. Moses saw God at the burning bush, and the bush was on fire. And I love a, a kid's video that we got recently on the story of Moses. And after Moses talks with God at the burning bush and the glory of God is gone, Moses walks over and he picks a leaf off the bush. I uh, was not singed, did not burn up the bush. Okay, very interesting. And then, of course, we know that people met God at Mount Sinai and the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And notice the glory of the Lord appeared to the Israelites like devouring fire on the top of the mountain. Okay, do you think all the trees were burned uh, off the mountain? Okay, we don't have any record of that. And of course, Moses saw God face to face and notice the description when he would return to the people. Whenever Moses went into the tent of the Lord's presence to speak to the Lord, he would take the veil off. When he came out, he would tell the people of Israel everything that he'd been commanded to say and they would see that his face was shining. Remember, they asked him to cover it. It made them feel uncomfortable. And then he would put the veil back on until the next time he went to speak to the Lord. So Moses was reflecting in his face some sort of glory from God um, that he had uh, acquired by dwelling in God's presence. Okay, were these third-degree burns that Moses had in his face? What does that mean? It's some sort of uh, brightness. It's something, okay, but is it an actual fire that is harmful? Uh, the Shekinah glory, of course, uh, right there in the most, most holy place. And there are some descriptions where this glory would fill the entire temple, okay, like when Solomon prayed. But never a description of all the curtains burning up um, in the presence of this uh, great uh, fire. 
Now, here's a very, very interesting one. We didn't talk about this in Leviticus, but uh, Aaron's bad sons, Nadab and Abihu. Uh, We won't talk about what they did wrong, but what happened to them is fascinating. They disobeyed the Lord by burning before him the wrong kind of fire. So notice, fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up, and they died there before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord meant when he said, I will display my holiness through those who come near me. I will display my glory before all the people. And Aaron was silent. And then Moses called for Aaron's cousins. He said to them, come forward and carry away the bodies of your relatives from in front of the sanctuary to a place outside the camp. Now, just intuitively, what would you imagine here? We have this fire that comes from the very presence of God. Nadab and Abihu are gone. If you're asked to carry them out, uh, what would you think would be left of them? Here's what I find fascinating. They came forward and they picked them up by their garments and carried them out of the camp just as Moses had commanded them. So there is some sort of glory, something like a fire from God's presence. Nadab and Abihu died and they're carried out by their clothes. So whatever it was, it didn't seem to consume their flesh uh, or their garments. We know that Job saw the glory of God And he had a similar response to Isaiah when he saw the glory of God. He said, In the past, I knew only what others had told me, but now I have seen you with my own eyes, so I am ashamed of all I have said and repent in dust and ashes. And of course, God came back and said, Job, you said of me what was right. But as he sees the glory of God, there is a feeling of guilt and condemnation associated with that. Daniel is about the only person in the Bible. We have no record of him doing anything wrong. Daniel also encountered the glory of God. I looked up and saw someone who was wearing linen clothes and a belt of fine gold. His body shone like a jewel. His face was as bright as a flash of lightning and his eyes blazed like fire. His arms and legs shone like polished bronze and his voice sounded like the roar of a great crowd. I was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were there with me did not see anything, but they were terrified and ran and hid I was left there alone watching this amazing vision. I had no strength left and my face was so changed that no one could have recognized me. And in some versions, it's my own beautiness was turned into corruption. When I heard his voice, I fell to the ground unconscious and lay there face downward. But I like in every case where uh, a person like Isaiah, Job, Daniel, John, when they're encountered with God, this is the way they feel. This is always God's response. Then a hand took hold of me and raised me to my hands and knees. I was still trembling. The angel said to me, Daniel, God loves you. Stand up and listen. And then he was given strength and he received the message. And just the last one in this point, John, I mean, John walked with Jesus for three and a half years. But now he has this encounter with Jesus in all his glory. And when I saw him, I fell down at his feet like a dead man. Same thing. But what's the response from God? He placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. So we're always afraid. God's initial response is always, there is no reason to be afraid. Okay, what's the point of all this? I'm trying to describe this encounter, face-to-face encounter that the book of Revelation describes each and every one of us having with God. Lucifer dwelled in the very presence of God. Ezekiel describes this. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. God's presence is always described as a fire. Lucifer walked completely in safety in the coals of this fire. 
But notice, we read on in this description about Lucifer, and here is what is described as the end of Lucifer. You defiled your sanctuaries with your many sins, your dishonest trade. Uh, We'll talk about what that means later. Uh, But notice, so I brought fire from within you, and it consumed you. I let it burn you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching. The destructive element of the fire comes from within. I wish we had time to go through all the verses in Jeremiah, but for the wicked, the fire comes from within. It is the evil deeds, the distrust, the rebellion that is the destructive element from within. Now, here's why I brought all this up. This is the most spectacular verse in Isaiah for describing the end of sin and sinners. If you haven't read this, uh, it is really wonderful. But the Lord says, Now I will do something and be greatly praised. Your deeds are straw that will be set on fire by your very own breath. You will be burned to ashes like thorns in a fire. Everyone, both far and near, come look at what I have done. See my mighty power. The sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling, grips the godless. Notice, who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? I mean, this is describing a people coming into the presence of God. This is describing, I believe, the same thing in Revelation 14. And the question of those who do not trust God, who do not know him as a friend, is who can dwell with that consuming fire? Who can dwell with the everlasting burnings? God himself is a consuming fire. Not of hostility, but again, the experience that Isaiah had, the guilt, the condemnation, Um, This is heightened, I think, to an an incredible intensity for those who do not know God. But here's the wonderful thing. We contrast here these people who say, we cannot enter in, we cannot dwell with the eternal fire, but some people can. He who walks righteously and speaks what is right, and the description goes on, these people can dwell with complete safety in the presence of God. In Psalm 68 too. As wax melts in front of the fire, so do the wicked perish in his presence. Same words, in his presence. But the righteous are glad and rejoice in his presence. They are happy and shout for joy. And in Malachi 4, it's really quite redundant. The Lord Almighty says, The day is coming when all proud and evil people will burn like straw. On that day, they will burn up. There will be nothing left of them. And at least as I'd grown up... uh, From my own background, it was, uh, well, we have very good news for the world. Uh, You won't burn forever. Might last for minutes, might last for hours, but the fire will go out. And um, I think, no, the fire is really eternal. If the eternal fire is the very presence of God, his goodness, his love, the eternal fire, it is an eternal fire. I think what is not eternal is the suffering of those who don't want to be with God. And uh, their life uh, ends not at God's hands, but I believe in this, in this encounter and kind of a psychological meltdown. I'm not sure what to describe it. But notice, on that day they will burn up. There will be nothing left of them. But notice, but for you who obey me, my saving power will rise on you like the sun and bring healing like the sun's rays. So for some it is destructive, some it is healing. You will be as free and happy as calves let out of a stall. And so the eternal fire, it really is eternal fire because... Look, the description, us with God in heaven, and I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. So we'll dwell in that presence, in God's presence for all eternity, uh, no harm. 
and the, the end of Revelation describes it this way, they will see his face. We will all see God's face. And his name, his character, will be written on their foreheads. There shall be no more night, and they will not need lamps or sunlight, because the Lord God will be their light, and they will rule as kings forever and ever. Um, much more to be said here on the subject of fire, but um, we'll explore this a little more when we get into Joel and Jeremiah and other places. There's a verse in Luke where Jesus says, I came to set the earth on fire and how I wish it were already kindled. And I don't think he's talking about a fire that would destroy. Uh, the fire, if it is seen as God's love, um, God himself, that fire that would envelop the world um, potentially would be uh, um, a good thing. And so I think it's it's all depends on how we look at this, whether it's destructive or healing. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much that uh, once again you have, in books written so long ago, given us insight and understanding into things of such uh, great importance. And uh, none of us see things with absolute clarity and perfection, but lead us to a better understanding of truth. And we know that as we do, you will appear better and better. In your name we pray. Amen.